Amen. Here we are in John chapter 3, and um, I just want to start out by saying that we're living in some really weird times. We're living in the day and age of what, I think it's a, an honest assessment, we are living in the day of the celebrity pastor, and it's unfortunate. I received a really strange compliment yesterday. Uh, there was a man that I've been spending time with, encouraging him in his faith, and, and he told me, he's like, don't take this the wrong way, but I just want you to know, I find it very refreshing, that when you pray, you don't change your voice and pray like in a, in a different tone. You don't use different words. It's just like you pray to God like you always talk. And I say, yeah, you know, my wife knows how I talk too. And if I was to come home after work and be like, hey, honey, I'm home. Woman, where's my dinner? This is a great night, sweetie pie. And she'd be like, what's wrong with you? You don't talk like that. Because if I'm going to have a relationship with anyone, I want it to be sincere, especially a relationship with God. So I don't want to be some different person when I'm in the presence of God than I am when I'm with God's people. I don't want to be like, you know, switching on this performance and that performance. And sadly, that's a lot of what we have in the world that we're living in today is performance. And with the performance, enter the age of the celebrity pastor. And as the old saying goes, if you seek the spotlight, it will blind you. Two years ago, the lead singer from a Christian rock band called Skillet, two years ago, he kind of released, he shared this message. And I think all of us should learn from it. He said this, He said, make pastors uncool again. Pastors shouldn't be rock stars. Yeah, I said it. A rock star promotes himself, builds his brand, and entertains people. It's his job. A pastor is supposed to lay his life down for his sheep. He serves, he protects, and he equips the saints for the work of the ministry. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. So why does it seem like many of our celebrity pastors are obsessively self-promoting, building their own brands, and protecting themselves by never preaching or teaching anything that would put them in Twitter prison? Obviously, before the days of Elon Musk and his takeover, right? Um, But yes, it's sad and devastating to watch our leaders fall into sin, But when the foundation is built so poorly, it shouldn't be all that surprising. Many Christians have been saying this for years, and it's past time that I join them. I'm tired of celebrity pastors. Pastors aren't supposed to be cool. They're not supposed to be fashion trendsetters. We are all called to decrease that Christ would increase both in our hearts and in our lives, John 3.30. His fame should be known, not ours. Celebrity pastors, get out of the way. You're hogging the spotlight by making yourself the story. Instead, you should be taking some hits on the front lines by stating clearly what God commands. 
Celebrity pastors seldom do this. Instead, most of what we hear is rhetorical gobbledygook, veiled mysticism, and repackaged New Age movement, self-help promotional material disguised as the work of the Spirit. Pastors, I'm thankful for you. Many are serving faithfully, and you will be rewarded by God. But for the pastors who are receiving their reward on earth, I have a request for you. Please stop looking for adoration from the world. We don't need you to look awesome. We need you to be fearless and preach the gospel according to the unchanging, authoritative word of God. Stop finding clever ways to evade questions. You know the ones. God's commands about sexual morality. God's authority structure in the church and in the home. Biblical justice instead of the rebellion, or sorry, the religion of modern social justice. Answer them, and answer them clearly for heaven's sake. Please stop trying to find new ways to explain the perceived inconvenient truths of God's word. You ought to love what he loves and hate what he hates. This used to be a prerequisite for church leadership. Today, it's deemed radical and even bigoted. Playtime is over. The spiritual battle is raging. The field is full of wimps and boys who have never picked up a sword because it just feels mean. We need generals and leaders who don't care about their brand, their look, their likes, or making allegiances with the world. In short, it's time to make pastors uncool again. That is what we all need to hear. Now, we're wondering why we're having such little impact on changing the world, and yet the whole time we're trying to be like the world. What's there to change when you're like it? And yet here we are. Jesus had just finished his conversation with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a man who was part of a religious system that felt threatened. And why did they feel threatened? Because Jesus was just being himself. He was everything that the Old Testament had prophesied him to be. But you know what the problem with them was? The same is the problem with much of the modern church today. Is They didn't want Jesus. They didn't want Jesus. We are in a day and age where people want less than the Bible or they want more than the Bible. But don't give me the Bible. Don't give me what it says. Don't give me the Bible. Give me more than that or less than that. And any Jesus that comes in and becomes a threat to me and my kingdom, I don't want that kind of Jesus. I just want the Jesus that amplifies me, amplifies my kingdom, one that will make my name greater. They didn't want Jesus. They just wanted the fame and the power that they were able to command by putting themselves between man and God. And so with that, we find the setting. In verse 22 through 24. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salam, or Salim because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. 
So the setting is this. On the one side, you have these religious leaders. The religious leaders, they were already bothered by the fact that John the Baptist had been baptizing. You remember back in chapter 1, uh, John 1, 19 through 25, it says, Now this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, Now those who were sent from the Pharisees, or those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? They're like, by what authority are you doing this? And that's what was bothering them. You see, he had been calling people to get right with God away from Jerusalem. He had been calling people to get right with God apart from the religious system. He had been calling people to get right with God, and he didn't need anyone's permission to do so. And that drove them crazy. God had called him, God was using him, and they were bothered by that because he didn't go through their system. He didn't go through their schools. He didn't get their big old stamp of approval and then from that be sent out in their name as a qualified minister. He didn't have their degree. And the degree thing is funny anyways, right? You can get a PhD in something, but how did that even start? was a bunch of people that thought they were important, that they looked at you and said, okay. And it's the same way with them. In the rabbinical system, they would receive what was called shmiha, which would mean that two separate rabbis would, would testify to the fact that you deserve to be used. And at that point, you would receive your, you know, your, your certification. But nobody's doing that to John. He doesn't ask their permission. He's not going through their system. He's not one of their kind. And yet, God is using him, and it's undeniable, and they hated him for it. And I want to tell you something. If you're sitting around waiting for your degree to be used by God, you're waiting for the wrong thing. If you're sitting around waiting for man to validate you so that you can finally be used by God, you're waiting for the wrong thing. The Lord wants to use you. He's not looking for anyone's stamp of approval but his own. And if he has sent you, then obey, be bold. Now on the other hand, so they have these guys that are so mad because John the Baptist is being used by God apart from needing their machine to do it. And they hated him. On the other hand, you have John and his disciples. God had seen fit to bypass all the big names and the the big shots of the day. It tells us in Luke 3, verse 1 through 3, now the 15th year, the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and the region of Trachonitis, Lysinus, 
Tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. Now look, they have two high priests. You're only supposed to have one high priest. If you have two high priests, you know something's corrupt, right? And yet here it is. There's two high priests. Huh. It says in the middle of all these big shots and all these heavyweights, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. John knew he was called by God. He knew what it was that God called him to do. And let me tell you, there is no need to be insecure when you know what, has God, what God has called you to do. If God has called you to do it, then you do it. You don't need to worry. When God calls us to something, he doesn't give us a roadmap to follow and then leave us to figure it out. He walks with us. He calls us. He equips us. He goes with us, and he strengthens us. And you don't need to be insecure about that. If God raises someone else up down the street to do something similar, don't worry about that. You just do what God has called you to do. If there's some obstacles and difficulties in the way of what God's called you to do, don't worry about that either. You just do what God's called you to do. And that's what John knew what he was called to. And he did it, even though it was difficult. He reminds me a lot of Jeremiah. When God sent Jeremiah, he sent him to do a very thankless and dangerous task. The people hated him. And I want to tell you, sometimes when you're faithful to God, no one's going to love you for it. And I hope you're okay with that. Sometimes when you're faithful to God, you're going to lose friends. Sometimes when you're faithful to God, they're going to crucify you. But you're in good company. And I'll tell you, it's way better to be faithful to God. It's way better. Jeremiah, God told him in Jeremiah 1.8 and Jeremiah 1.17, Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. And in Jeremiah 1.17, Therefore prepare yourself and arise and speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. Jeremiah knew he was called by God. So did John. And I'll tell you this, you can't stop a man or a woman who knows what they're living for and who they're living for. So you have the religious leaders who have begun to play this game of self-promotion. They love the fact that people feel like they need them to have validation in their life. They, feel, they love the fact that people feel like they need them in order to have a relationship with God. They love the fact that they have figured out a way to stand between man and God and even profit off of it. They love the power of that, the authority of it, the position of it. That's the one hand. On the other hand, you have John the Baptist who's not asking them for any permission to do the thing that God's called them to do. He's just out faithfully serving the Lord, calling people to repentance and it's an uncomfortable message, but nonetheless, it needs to be said. And God is using him, and it's undeniable. So you have the religious leaders. You have John and his disciples. And now thirdly in the setting, we see that Jesus and his disciples were also baptizing. And many people came to be baptized. That's the setting. Now that we have the setting, let's see the setup. 
in verses 25 and 26. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. So there's a dispute. And who do we see stirring it up? It says the Jews. Now understand, when John uses the expression, the Jews, he's talking about the religious leaders. He's talking about the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, those that have this position of authority within the society, the religious leaders. And they didn't really like the fact that John and his guys were were baptizing apart from the system that was there in Jerusalem. They didn't like that. And now Jesus and his disciples are doing the same thing. So now here's these two movements that are out there that are disconnecting from needing this corrupt system in Jerusalem. They don't like that. And so the way that they come to John and his disciples, they break the news in a way that's specifically meant to stir up jealousy. All are coming to Jesus now. And so you have the setting and the setup And John, in his wisdom, when he feels like he's being set up, he does what every godly man or woman should do. He just steps aside. 27 through 30, we see this. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. But I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. John's answer here is a lesson to us all. Because listen, a sense of jealousy or of envy or of rivalry or competition, it's been provoked. There's there's now like this this stirring up, like you should be jealous of this other ministry. You should should feel the competitiveness of this other ministry. You, you You should feel threatened by this other work that is now becoming more successful than your work. You're losing your greatness. You're, lo- you're losing the, the sense that they need you. You're losing. And John's disciples were upset that Jesus is now setting up a rival camp just a mile or two down the river and winning more people than John was. Look, competition can be a really dangerous thing when it enters the family of God, when it enters God's people. This sense of rivalry between ministries, it's one of the devil's most effective tools of getting us to be battling each other when we should be reaching out 
and like storming the gates of hell instead. Instead of like, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, we're like, well, yeah, but they're there. Let's go over here and storm the gates of that church and tell us how they're so flawed. And you know what? Sometimes they are messed up. Good thing we're part of the perfect church, right? (laughs) Isn't that just such an arrogant way to stand? Those guys are so messed up because I'm the blameless and we're part of the blameless. And so the wicked one would love to get us acting like we are rival businesses. Sure, there's a McDonald's down the street, but I'm establishing a Burger King where you can have it your way. You know, like, sure, like, what, we just got whatever that one chicken and spaghetti place is. We just got that. So, yeah, now what we're going to do is get Chick-fil-A and the other one and all the chicken places because they're all going to compete against each other. You know, like, but within the family of God, we end up getting to a place where we get sidetracked from actually spreading the gospel. And, you know, I think of Paul. I can't help but think of Paul while he's in prison there in Philippi. You guys are still going through Philippians? On Thursday night? Where Paul says, you know, some preach Christ out of envy supposing to add affliction to my bonds. The other, of goodwill, knowing that I am set for the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He says, but whether by pretense, or envy or strife, or by goodwill, he says, Christ is preached, and in that I rejoice. Like, what a mature perspective that even though there's these guys that were showing up and yeah they might have had a little bit more of a prosperity bend to their gospel preaching and they'd be like look obviously God's blessings aren't on Paul because if God wanted to bless him he wouldn't bless him with chains in a prison cell he'd bless him with a fancy mansion and a nice clothes but we're free he's bound obviously our ministry is more blessed because we're not in a prison cell And then they would go on and preach Christ. Now, all that other stuff is all garbage. We know why Paul was in prison. God had sent him there. And in that, God was using him there. God had a purpose that was beyond Paul's temporary comforts. And and that's why he could even say, you know, those that that are in Philippi or in Rome greet you, even those that are of Caesar's household that are brethren now. What? But Paul's like, you know what? It doesn't matter what they're thinking about me and what they tell people about me. But what does matter is what they tell people about Jesus. And Christ is being preached. And in that I rejoice. Um, here they were getting competitive over baptism. How many did you baptize this week? Oh, well, uh, <laughs> This week was a little slow, but last week was, it was a great turnout. You should have been there. Um, feeling like they need to validate themselves. 
And the crowds that once came flocking to hear John, they're now going to hear Jesus. But John doesn't mind. And you know why? There's a common thread for those that have had like an actual, like, like, like a deep relationship with the Lord. There's something that the glory of God has exposed within them. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5. He says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Like we're, Paul says, I'm not preaching me. I'm preaching Jesus. And it's the heart's desire of those who have had a, a true perspective of the greatness and glory of God. It's the passion of those who have spent time with him, who have seen him. It's the passion of those, like John says in John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. A believer who's seen that, who's come to the understanding, who's received light from God, who's had his eyes open to a spiritual reality, that's a believer who knows full well who they are, not in light of other pastors or other Christians, but who they are in light of the glory of God. And they realize that in light of the glory of God that they all sin, they all fall short, right? It's not a matter of saying, like, look how much one more wonderful I am amongst all these other sinners, it's Christ, that Christ would be known, that Christ would be seen, that Christ would be glorified, that Christ would be magnified. They understand the greatness of their sin, but yet they also understand that they've received even greater mercy. They know wholeheartedly, like it says in John 15, 4 and 5, where Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. James 4.10, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. James 4.6 tells us that God resists the proud. You know the only relationship that a proud man can have with the Lord is a distant one? Because he resists the proud. But in humility, we can draw near. Humility says what John says here. He must increase I must decrease humility doesn't say I must increase in order to make him increase humility doesn't say I have to be greater so that I can make him seem greater Humility doesn't say, if he's greater, then I can become greater. It's, it's neither way on that horse and carriage. It's that let him be magnified and me forgotten. The psalmist says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. And yet we go to churches where you're sitting as far away from the 
preacher as you are from me. And yet the jumbotron has the pastor at 12 feet tall. Like, we don't need to see you bigger, dude. We see you. (laughs) Well, yeah, but I want to seem powerful. You'll never be that. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. You know, the psalmist says, not unto us, not unto us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and your truth's sake. And that's, that should be our attitude. You know what humility finds? Humility finds Hebrews 7, 7, now beyond all contradiction. The lesser is blessed by the greater. The low place is the place where you are blessed. Not the place of self-exaltation. Not the place of, you know, trying to amplify and magnify your name. I'm going to start a ministry. What should I call it? Sean Houseman Ministry. I don't want my name great. I'd like my name to eventually be forgotten. And if my name is ever remembered, that it's that I made much of Christ. And yet, oh, we get to this place where we love the praise and the glory and the attention. John knew that he wasn't the Messiah. He knew he wasn't like the big cheese. He was only looking to Jesus and pointing to Jesus. And just like John, we need to step aside. We need to step aside. Stop eclipsing the glory of God. I remember when I was in Bible college, um, I lived in, I grew up in San Diego, and, uh, and I went to Bible college in a, a te- Marietta, Temecula area. It was really close by. It was about, you know, an hour away. And while I was in Bible college, somebody knew somebody who lived in Coronado Island there in San Diego. And in Coronado, it was like, there was a lot of money there. And these parents would have these teenage kids, and they'd be like, Here's $100, just stay away tonight. I don't, like, stay out of my hair. And so these kids were getting into all kinds of mischief with no parental supervision and way too much money. And they started getting into some, like, when you have $100 coming to you every day just to stay out of, the, out of your parents' hair, like, these kids started getting into really heavy drugs. They were shooting heroin in between their toes so that the parents wouldn't see their tracks. These kids were messed up. And this one mother, she saw where her kids were going, and she's like, we're going to have a Bible study, and I'm going to feed these kids, and I'm going to invite them over, but I need somebody that will teach the Bible study. And so she knew someone who knew someone who knew me, and they asked me, hey, would you teach this Bible study? I'm like, sure. And so I would drive down from um, Marietta down to Coronado, and we'd have the Bible study, and... uh, And when I was teaching through the Gospel of John, I got here to to John 3.30. 
And, uh, and I'd read through all of my commentaries and stuff, and I felt like, man, I'm, I'm just, I'm missing it. I'm missing it. Well, a little side story. Calvary Chapel goes way back, um, you know, to like late 60s, early 70s. Started as like a little Bible study in a small church. Um, this guy named Pastor Chuck Smith, who just started like simply teaching the Bible. And then with that, you know, began to have some interaction with hippies. And, and for, there's going to be a, a really interesting movie about the history of Calvary Chapel coming out pretty soon. Um, I think it's coming out in like February. I think it's called Jesus Revolution. It's going to be in the theater. So if you want to know like, what about Calvary Chapel? It, everybody that's been part of it, they're, they're really excited about it. And the trailers are amazing. But anyway, at the beginnings of Calvary Chapel, early on, Pastor Chuck Smith, he ended up getting an assistant pastor. And his assistant pastor was this guy who just went by the name Romaine. Um, you'd be like, well, what's Romaine? Romaine what? Just Romaine. Nobody wanted, he didn't want to tell anybody his first name was Laverne. Um, but Romaine. And Romaine was an intimidating man. He carried himself very much like a, like a drill sergeant. And... Uh, Men feared him. I remember going to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa and afterwards, you know, trying to meet him. And he'd be like, what? <laughs> like, just want to say hi. You know, just be like, but yet at the same time, like, he wouldn't, he wouldn't put up with anybody's excuses. And, uh, and he was at the Bible college that week while I was studying. And he was, he was just staying in one of the dorms of the conference center because his wife had just passed away. And he just needed time away to be alone. And I remember sitting there on this picnic table and I'm, and I'm just sitting there like praying through the passage and I felt like the Lord was saying, go talk to Romaine about it. And I'm like, I'm not going to talk to Romaine. That, no. And I, no, go find Romaine. Go talk to Romaine about it. Oh, this is crazy. He'll yell at me. He'll straight out shout at me. I'm not going to go talk to Romaine. Talk to Romaine about it. I'm like, oh. okay, I'm going to talk to Romaine about it. So I fold up my books, fold up my Bible. I get up from the picnic table to go look for this guy. And as soon as I turn around, he's right behind me. I'm like, hey, I was just going to go and find you. Oh, yeah, why? Well, I had a question about a passage of the Scripture. And I just really think that I, it would be important for me to hear your take on it. Oh, what passage is that? And I tell him, here, John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. And he's like, let's have a seat. And I had about an hour of this man just investing in my life, like sweet and tender. I, I think I saw a side of Romaine that I've never heard anybody tell that story of who this guy was. Because, like, he had no patience for people's stupid excuses. But for people that were, like, hungering and thirsting for God, like, he had all the time in the world. And it was amazing just to hear him invest in me and, like, just tell me about his wife, tell me about how close she was to the Lord, how, like, her heart's prayer had always been, Lord, I want to be so close to you that I can hear your heartbeat. And he's like, and that woman meant it. But he's like, in this passage, I think the thing that's often missed is the word must. 
I'm like, huh? It's like there's nothing optional about that verse. There's no way around it. There's no escaping it. No matter where and how you are bent in your life, you will never get around this verse. For he must increase. And you will decrease. And there's no exceptions to that. And I'm like, huh. He's like, you'll spend all of your energy and all your life trying to make something of yourself, and you know what it's going to be reduced to? Dust and ashes. And if you spent your whole life living for you, it'll all be a waste. And nonetheless, he will increase. Or you can live your life for the glory of God. And even still, you will gladly say, Lord, let me decrease so that you may increase. And again, as it says in Philippians, and God has given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And when he emphasized that, it's a must. You just get to decide whether your decrease will be for his glory or whether your decrease will be to your shame. But it's a must. And I just thought that was so beautiful. And from that, I was just like, Lord, let me forever just step aside so that like, I can make your name great in the earth. And so from that, we have the setting and the setup, and then John steps aside in his heart, and now we have him preach his little sermon, and we'll wrap it up here with verse 31 through 36, where John says this, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John is saying that Jesus' words are way greater than my words. Why? Because I'm from heaven. Or John's like, because I'm from earth. And I'll tell you, every other, every preacher after John, same thing. Guess what? They're from earth. They speak with a limited perspective. They speak earthly things. And yet when Jesus speaks, he speaks with, he sees all the factors of life together in just one unit. Everything, like I speak with a very limited perspective. He speaks with an entire perspective. He is from heaven. He speaks truth from a perfect perspective. And yet we're from the earth, and we can only see a narrow, limited perspective. So why do we spend so much time giving people our advice when we could just be giving them the word of God? Why do we spend so many sermons just giving them like warm, heartwarming stories when we should be feeding them the Bible? Everlasting truth. 
for the stability and the saving of the soul. Like Isaiah said in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And that means when Jesus speaks, we should listen. We should listen. And what does he say? Well, it's interesting that here, John, in verse 36, he sort of recaps everything that Jesus had just said to Nicodemus in verses 15 down to verse 21. He does like a recap. So already it's like John knows about what Jesus has been talking about to Nicodemus. What does he say? Boiled down, he simply says, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Look, we do what we feel. We do what feels good to us. What we think is right. We spend all our time just like, you know, trying to do what we think is going to, this is going to be better for me. This is going to be good for me. This is going to feel good for me. And we continue to be filled with emptiness and depression and, and, and just all of the, the monotony of it all. The anger and, the, and ultimately death. And the wrath of God is upon mankind. The wrath of God is upon those who continually choose their own way. And when they're presented with the gospel... They neglect it. They reject it. They refuse to believe to the saving of their soul. But John was a faithful witness. And his final witness concerning Jesus is this. He who believes on the Son has everlasting life. But if they refuse to believe, he says this, they shall not see life. They won't even know what living could be. Like they might continue on in their existence, but they won't even know what living actually could be. The way that God intended it, they will never know that. And then from that, he goes on, but the wrath of God abides on them. You'll never know what life is, and the wrath of God abides on you. There is serious consequences to the rejecting of the gospel. But oh, the joy and oh, the blessing of being a child of God. Oh, the blessing. And as John Cooper said, playtime is over. The spiritual battle is raging and the field is full of wimps and boys who have never picked up a sword because it just feels mean. We need generals and leaders who don't care about their brand, their look, their likes, we're making allegiances with the world. In short, it's time to make pastors uncool again. And listen, for the sake of your soul, I'm willing to be an uncool pastor. And I'm willing to tell you today that if you do not turn to Christ, you will perish in your sins and it will be hell forever. And there's no other way around it. The wrath of God abides on you today and forevermore. But if you would look to Christ, if you would believe on him, 
if you would receive him. Like what it says there in John chapter 1. It says biblical terms. You must receive him. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to be the sons of God. You must receive him. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You must believe. You must confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. As it tells us in Romans 10, 9 and 10, like you are responsible for this action. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And there's no other way. There's no other name whereby we must be saved. And so, if you don't turn to Jesus, you will be damned. But if you turn to Jesus, you will be blessed. You will know joy. You will have purpose in your life. You will get a sense of calling. As it says there, I mean, he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life. I want to see life. I want to know what living can be. And I know this, that living is never meant to be apart from the author of life. And you can have that today just by looking to him, trusting in him, believing in him, receiving him, confessing him, all the terms that that John and Romans and like all those terms, like trust in Jesus. Jesus.